Welcome to this Uvila audio presentation of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. Volume 7, Chapter 16, The Lake of Darkness Rick sat with his back against the cold surface of a stalagmite column. His head drooped with weariness and his throat ached from yelling. He had retraced his steps a dozen times or more. He had lost count but none of the passages took him back to his friends, nor had his yelling of their names brought a response. He forced himself into a semblance of calm and tried to think. What was he going to do? He eyed the beam of his flashlight and realized that he ought to conserve the batteries. He turned it off and dead, silent blackness closed in around him. True blackness is rare. It cannot be found by closing shutters or curtains in a room, even at night. Some light always penetrates man-made rooms unless they are designed, as very few are, for total darkness. Rick never had experienced it before, and it was frightening. He had to take a firm grip on himself to keep from getting panicky. But if the underground caverns were completely without light, they were not completely without sound. As Rick sat quietly, he began to hear the slow drip of water. It was the slow drip of centuries that had produced the weird, limestone formations of the caves. He began to talk quietly to himself, and the sound of his own voice was better than listening to the slow drip, drip, drip of water. I can't stay here. The others wouldn't have any more chance of finding me than I have of finding them. But if I leave here, I'm taking a chance. I might go so deep into the caves, I'd never find my way out again or see any of the others again. He had visited some of the limestone caves of Virginia, and he had read of the New York and Kentucky caverns. He knew that even in America there were endless series of caves that had never been fully explored. This fabled Tibetan place might extend on forever. On the other hand, if I keep moving, I might stumble onto that big cave under the Black Buddha again. It's less than a 50-50 chance. A whole lot less, but it's a chance. I think I better take it. He didn't let himself think of what would happen if he failed to find his way back. He got to his feet and switched on the light again. By contrast with the total darkness, the reflection of the beam on the limestone walls was like brilliant sunlight. He had to wait while his eyes adjusted themselves to the light. Then he flashed the beam around. There were passages going in every direction. Which way do I go, he asked himself. It was a toss-up. He remembered an old trick and spat into the palm of his hand. Then, with the forefinger of his other hand, he slapped the spittle sharply. The biggest drop flew between two limestone hourglasses that formed one passage. He hitched up the camera case on one shoulder 
and picked up his rifle and started forward. The caverns were endless. Walking slowly to conserve strength, he wandered through countless incredible rooms of gleaming stone. The dripping water had formed all manner of things. He saw animals, ships, mountain scenes, waterfalls, cataracts, fairy grottos, fish, distant houses, all carved of shining stone by millions upon countless millions of water droplets over centuries past number. He was so completely enthralled by the unearthly beauty of the place that he even forgot his own predicament for a few moments. And then he noticed his flashlight was growing so weak that he no longer threw a clearly defined beam. It must have been getting weaker for some time, he thought, but his eyes had adjusted themselves to the failing light. He looked at his watch, wondering that the flashlight batteries had run down so soon. The watch had run down, too, and had stopped. He couldn't remember. Had he wound it before coming to the cave? He was chilled now. It was cold and damp in the limestone passages. He shivered and pulled up his collar. Panic rose up again. He didn't know how long he had been in the cave. Had it been only a short while, or so many hours that his watch had run down? He said to himself, as calmly as he was able, I'm just going to have to get to where I'm going before the light fails altogether. And then he began to run. The illusion grew that he was trying to overtake the end of the flashlight's beam. When he did catch up with it, that would be the end. He had completely forgotten the infrared light on the camera, even though the case banged against his side as he ran. He'd been carrying it for so long it had become a part of him. He dodged through passages, rounded terms, leapt over stalagmites. Once he had to crawl on his hands and knees under the water-smooth limestone, pushing his rifle ahead of him. All the time he was catching up with the end of the light. The radius of illumination narrowed as the batteries failed, increasing the danger of stumbling into a sudden crevice. Outside, the flashlight would have been rejected long ago as a source of light, but this far underground, with no light of any kind, it was still useful. Running more slowly now, at a stumbling dog trot, he broke into a cave larger than any he had seen since the first one, at the end of the passage from the Black Buddha. The feeble light failed to reach the opposite wall. Rick stopped, panting for breath. He knew he had to rest. He found a natural seat next to a twisted pillar of limestone and sat down. The light faded slowly until there was only the dimmest of red tints to the bulb. And then that vanished too, and he was again in total darkness. As he watched the light fade, he remembered the infrared. Now he got the glasses out of the case and put them on. He took the camera out and adjusted the hand strap so it could be carried like a satchel. But he didn't turn on the light just yet. The battery had to be conserved at all costs. He swallowed hard, because when the battery for the infrared light ran down, there would be nothing but darkness. Darkness would mean feeling his way through the limestone tangle, and he realized fully that he would not get far before death claimed him in the form of a yawning canyon in the limestone rock. He had passed many of them. He set his jaw. That was about ten hours away, because the battery would last that long. Ten hours was a long time, if used wisely. 
He closed his eyes and leaned back, dead tired, and then he dozed off. Rick was never sure what awakened him, because there was no noise, and maybe the light on eyes made sensitive by ultimate blackness, but could a single candle have that much effect? The candle was carried by a man, a Tibetan. The candle was in a tin container, punched full of holes. That was to keep it from being blown out in case of a draft, although there was little or no draft in the caverns. When Rick opened his eyes, the man was walking straight across the floor of the big cave, noiseless as a cat in feet wrapped in quilted cloth. The miracle was that Rick didn't cry out upon seeing another human being. He sat frozen, watching the man. Then as the stranger reached the far side of the cave, Rick came to life. If he'd lost this man, who obviously knew his way around, he was finished. Working at top speed, he untied his shoelaces, slipped off his shoes. Then in stocking feet, he paddled silently across the floor. The candle was his guide. He didn't need the infrared beam yet. He would follow the candle. And if that led him right into the hands of the enemy, well, that was better than perishing alone of hunger in the blackness of the inner caves. As he went, wary of a backward look by his quarry, he put his rifle under his arm and fumbled to tie a knot in his laces. That took time, since he was carrying the camera in one hand now. When he finally managed, he draped the shoes around his neck. A dozen times he had been on the verge of abandoning the rifle as useless extra weight. Now he was glad he held on to it. Ahead, the candlelight bobbed and turned as the Tibetan, unaware that he was being followed, made his way through the caverns. Rick followed at a safe distance, close enough to avoid being left behind by a sudden turn. There was a new feeling in the air suddenly, a feeling of space and of wetness. Rick sniffed. There was an odor, too, like decaying leaves, although much weaker. His hopes brightened. Was the Tibetan leading him out of the caves? Then, so suddenly that he almost slipped from the edge, the path took him to a narrow ledge above a body of water of some kind. The Tibetan was making his way along the ledge, candle held high in a search for something. When Rick switched on the infrared light for a moment, the incredible scene leapt to his eyes from the darkness. For under his feet, a lake stretched away as farther shore beyond the 800-yard range of the infrared light. He turned the light back and forth, seeking the end of the amazing body of water. But there was nothing except the shore on which he stood. The water was dead calm. Not a ripple disturbed its glassy surface. He shot the invisible light straight down, and the water was so deep it looked black. With a sudden start, he realized he might lose the Tibetan candle-bearer. He hurried after him, using the infrared light, because the candle was too far away now to show him the path. With the glasses on, using the infrared light was just like using a powerful searchlight. Far ahead, the candle stopped moving. Rick now proceeded more cautiously, and he switched off the infrared light in case the Tibetan might look back and possibly spy the glowing filament of the lamp. The man was stooping over something, 
the candle resting on the stone next to him. Rick switched the light on, then off again, and he broke into a silent run. During the second the light had been on, he had seen that the Tibetan was untying a boat. He had an instant to make a decision. He reached a spot a few feet behind the preoccupied stranger, who was having trouble with the rope knot, and put the infrared camera down on the stone. Then, gripping the rifle firmly, he walked up right to the man. Hands up! he growled. The Tibetan screamed. He whirled, eyes wide with astonished fright. He didn't even see the rifle. He swept an enormous knife from his belt and leapt. Rick stumbled backwards, and as he did so, he realized he couldn't shoot. He still needed the man for a guide. He swung the rifle barrel first. It was just as effective as it had been when he swung on Worthington Co. The barrel connected with an audible thunk. The Tibetan fell forward on his face. Frightened out of his wits, Rick rolled him over pulled aside the sheepskin coat he wore, and put an ear to the man's chest. Then he sighed with relief. He hadn't swung too hard. For a moment he'd feared that the blow had killed the man, and that would have been almost as effective as holding the rifle barrel to his own head, because he still had no idea where to go without a guide. He debated for a moment and then lifted the Tibetan, dragged him to the boat, and dumped him in. It was a flat-bottomed craft with blunt ends and primitive oarlocks. The oars were poles with round discs of wood on the ends. He collected the candle and camera and placed them on the thwart and went to work on the rope. It was reeved through an iron ring that jutted from the stone. The sight gave him heart. Where there was iron, men came often. At least he was sure that held true in this case. But his victory had spurred him on and he didn't want to sit quietly and wait. He wanted to keep going. He untied the knot, blew out the candle, shipped the oars, and pushed off. Something was on the other side of this lake of darkness. He couldn't imagine what, but he intended to find out. Chapter 17 Through a Pair of Dark Glasses Somewhere, perhaps beyond the lake of darkness, was Long Shadow. Rick felt certain of it. The Tibetan, who lay unconscious at his feet, had been going somewhere. He had walked steadily and purposefully with some definite destination in mind. What was more logical than to assume that the Tibetan had been heading for the hidden plant where heavy water was being produced? Once the plant was found, Long Shadow would be found there also. Even if he were not there at the moment, he would come. And when he did, Rick intended to do something about it. He had no definite plans. He only knew that somehow he would force Long Shadow to unlock the gate to the outer world. His oars dipped rhythmically as he pulled out into the lake. The infrared light was directed toward a jutting edge of limestone on the shore he had just left. He was using the rock formation as a marker so he could steer a straight course. He wondered about his friends. Were they lost also? Or had they managed to keep to the right trail by following the tiny drops of candle wax? The odd tin candle holder explained why there wasn't more wax to follow. The holder caught most of it, but not all of the drippings. The rocky shore of the underground lake receded rapidly. Rick stopped rowing and turned, switching the infrared light toward the direction in which he was heading. He could see the opposite shore now, but dimly. 
Knowing that the infrared light was effective at 800 yards, he estimated the lake to be about 1,200 yards wide. That was over three-fifths of a mile. When he shot the light up and down the lake, he saw nothing but black water. That meant the lake was more than 1,600 yards long. He turned the light upward and surveyed the ceiling. It was irregular, varying in height from a dozen feet to over 200. In one place, the ceiling came down to within a few feet of the black water. It was an eerie place. Rick's quick imagination turned him into the mythical Charon, who ferried the dead across the river Styx into Hades. He grinned mirthlessly. The limp figure of the Tibetan gave substance to that picture. He bent over the man, reaching for his wrist. The pulse was weak but steady. He had given the Tibetan a healthy belt. There was no sign of returning consciousness, but Rick wasn't worried. If he had hurt the man badly, the pulse would have been thready and unsteady. He would wake up presently and his head would feel like a pillow stuffed with rocks, but otherwise he'd be okay. Rick knew this. He'd been knocked out himself a couple of times. He resumed rowing and his steady strokes brought him closer to the opposite shore. He turned to examine it and saw that a rocky ledge rose gradually out of the water. In a short time, he felt the boat grind against the limestone. He got out and pulled the craft up onto the shore, which was worn smooth by water. The ledge varied from ten to fifty feet in width. Beyond it, the roof of the cavern came down sharply to form a curving wall broken in countless places. He could see into the broken places nearest him. They were the beginnings of more cave labyrinths. Now that he had reached the opposite shore, what was he going to do? Again he leaned over the Tibetan. The man showed no signs of returning consciousness. Rick cast his invisible light up and down the shore. Nothing indicated that humans ever had been there before him. He realized that the wisest thing would be to wait until his guide returned to consciousness and then force him to lead the way once more. But he was impatient. Somewhere along the shore there must be signs he could follow. He pulled the boat up as high as he could, and then used strips torn from the Tibetan's own clothes to bind and gag him. That done, he picked up the infrared camera and his rifle and stood a moment in indecision. Which way to go? It was a toss-up. Finally, he decided to keep going in the general direction the Tibetan had led him. He paused long enough to inspect his rifle. After firing, he had failed to lever another cartridge into the chamber. He did so now and then put the hammer on half-cock so it couldn't fire accidentally and started off. It was easy going in most places, but now and then he came to a point where the shore ledge narrowed and he had to crawl. Once he skirted an outcropping by walking in the water, feeling his way carefully so he wouldn't step off a ledge into the depths. After a while, he began to think he hadn't been very smart. He was getting exactly nowhere. As far ahead as the infrared beam could penetrate, there was nothing but curving shoreline. In some places, the lake narrowed to a channel less than a hundred feet wide, then it broadened again until he could no longer see the opposite shore. He couldn't guess how far he had walked from the boat. He thought it must have been at least a quarter mile. Presently he found a place where a limestone pillar made a comfortable backrest and sat down. He switched off the infrared light, 
and instantly all light was blotted out. It was startling, even more so than when he had switched off the flashlight, because the infrared beam gave the illusion of a sort of gray daylight. He sat quietly, waiting for some of the weariness to leave his legs. His eyes closed, and after a while he opened them again, more from habit than with the intention of seeing anything. He couldn't even see the tip of his nose, it was so dark. Then suddenly he realized it wasn't as dark as he had expected. There was a faint, luminous quality that outlined the shore of the lake. He studied the line of demarcation and then guessed that the faint luminosity must come from microscopic plant or animal life that clung to the rock underwater. Seawater had a phosphorescence sometimes for the same reason. His eyes followed the faint line up the shore in the direction he had been traveling. The silver phosphorescence turned a faint yellow. Almost out of the range of his vision, the yellow was picked up by the water like the dimmest moonlight. He studied it for long moments, trying to figure out the reason for the phenomenon, and then he almost leapt out of his skin. The water was reflecting the yellow light. It didn't come from the water the way the luminous silver did. He got to his feet. Reflection meant man-made light. It was hard to follow the faint yellow light. When he switched on the infrared, the light vanished completely. When the infrared was off, he couldn't find his way. He compromised going a hundred feet or so with the infrared on, and then turning it off and sitting quietly until his eyes adjusted themselves and he could see the yellow glow once more. After he did this a few times, he could see that the light was growing slightly stronger. Then, as he progressed, he realized why he couldn't see the source of the light. It was around the corner of the rock wall. After several minutes of alternate walking and waiting, he reached the corner. It dropped sharply into the water. When he flashed the infrared down, he saw that the water was black. No shelf here to walk on. He debated for a moment. He could swim around, or he could try to find another way. There were plenty of cave openings. One of them might go through. He had been lost once, and he didn't intend to let that happen again. He tore open the packet of emergency rations he had brought, searching for something with which to lay a trail. Inside the wax container were little cans of food and a packet of hard crackers. The crackers would do. Looking at the food, however, reminded him that he hadn't eaten in a long time. He didn't know if it was hours or days. He had lost all track of time. He took the can key and unwound the narrow ceiling strip on a container of cheese. It tasted wonderful. He devoured every bit of it, including the crumbs left in the can. Then he opened a can of meat and ate that too. He had been sipping at his canteen at various times, but it was still more than half full. He detached the canteen cup and filled it from the lake, tasting it cautiously. The water had a flat taste like boiled water, but it seemed to be okay. He drank deeply, then filled the canteen. His hunger and thirst satisfied, he surveyed the various openings around him, then chose the one nearest the corner he wished to get around. At the very entrance, he placed the empty cheese tin. Inside the cave, he turned to be sure it was clearly visible. Then he walked across to an opening that seemed likely to lead him in the right direction. He placed the second can at that opening and went into the passage formed by a series of stalagmite columns. It was a dead end. He returned to the cave where he had left the cans, 
picked up the empty meat can and tried another entry. He was completely calm now. He knew that humans, even though enemies, were not far away, and he was quite sure that his friends were all right. They would take steps to leave a trail so they would not get lost as he had done. The second passage was better. He wound in and out through limestone formations, leaving a trail of broken cracker crumbs. Every now and then he turned to see that the trail was plain. He grinned. Hadn't he read a story when he was a kid about some children who had left a trail of crumbs only to have the birds eat them? Well, there was no danger of that here. No self-respecting bird would get near the place. It wasn't long before he was out of crumbs. Then he tore his handkerchief into tiny bits and used that. When he reached the end of the cloth scraps, he sat down to rest, turning off the infrared light while he carefully shredded a big piece of his shirt tail. As his eyes adjusted themselves to the darkness, he saw the yellow light again, only stronger this time. Carefully, his heart beating excitedly, he turned the infrared light in the direction of the yellow glow and switched it on. Before him was a big opening in the limestone. He surveyed the floor carefully and saw there was nothing over which to trip. He turned off the infrared light, and leaving a trail of torn cloth behind him, he crawled toward the source of the light. He came out on the shore of the lake once more. Before him stretched the black water, the yellow light dancing across its surface. And the source of the light was not from candles, but from torches. Across the water, perhaps a hundred yards away, a half-dozen torches burned, their light lost in the emptiness of the great lake cave. Near the torches he could see figures moving, and knew with sudden relief that he had found the enemy camp. He turned on the infrared light, aiming it at the torches, and through his special glasses he saw the scene light up. Where the torches blazed was a great shelf of rock, stretching back several hundred feet to where the rock wall began once more. On the shelf were a dozen men, sitting around a tiny cooking fire, much paler than the torches themselves. They were Tibetans, like the one he had captured. He saw an odd structure at the waterline, and after a little study, realized it was a barge of some kind, perhaps a floating pier. It had odd derrick-like wooden ladders on it. There were four of them, perhaps three feet high. Beyond the barge, he made out at least two flat-bottomed boats. Further back against the limestone wall, he could see tents or lean-tos made of some kind of cloth. He couldn't see clearly, but he thought the cloth might be felt. This, then, was a permanent camp. The tents must be there to offer some protection against the cold and dampness. He inspected the men again. They were all short. None of them could be long shadow. Now what? Rick asked himself. It was certain that Longshadow would come to the camp sooner or later. It was almost as certain that Scotty, Zircon, and Chada, if they followed the trail of wax candles, carefully would arrive sooner or later at the boat landing to which the Tibetan had led him, always provided they hadn't been ambushed. He shivered at the thought. The cave formations would make it easy for the enemy to lie in wait. Then, even with their old-fashioned muskets and lack of shooting ability, they could pick off the little party. But they wouldn't do that without cost. Scotty was a deadly rifleman, and Zircon was a better-than-average shot. Rick debated. It was no good to make his presence known. 
far better to lie and wait until Long Shadow came. Then, if he could take the camp by surprise, his rifle would do the rest for him. But how to take it by surprise? He scanned the shore around the camp. In several places between him and the camp shelf, the rock wall came right down to the lake's edge. Unless he wanted to search for a way through the caves, he would have to swim. Or use a boat. Beyond the last sheer place, the camp shelf started. Its edge curved and twisted for a little distance. If he could get to the starting point, he could keep under cover easily enough. Then making his way along the wall, he could probably escape being seen until he was almost at the tents. With luck, a sudden dash would bring him right to the enemy without being seen first. That was how he would do it. He would go back, get the boat, then lie in wait at this very place until the time came. He withdrew from the entrance and then paused suddenly. The men around the fire were getting to their feet, walking toward the water. He watched as they peered into the darkness in the direction he thought of as Down Lake. One of them ran to a torch, pulled it out of its holder, and ran back to the water's edge and waved it. It was a signal. But to whom? Two of the men were kneeling just beyond the barge, and a moment later they proceeded to get into the two flat-bottomed boats he had seen. What they had been doing was untying the boats. He watched as they rowed out onto the black lake. They must be going after someone. Rick hurried back the way he had come, following the path of torn cloth and then broken cracker crumbs. He would have to hurry. The Tibetans might have gone after Long Shadow. He retraced his steps at a pace that was half walking, half running. The trail he had left showed clearly in the infrared light. In a few moments he came out of the caves, onto the lake shore once more, and he saw the signal that had summoned the boats. A red light was now clearly visible. He thought it was right at the point which he had pushed off in the Tibetan's boat. A sudden thought struck him. Wouldn't they miss the Tibetan in the boat? He hurried faster. Now and then he stopped to listen. He could hear the sound of oars in the water. It didn't take long to reach his boat. When he leaned over the Tibetan, frightened black eyes peered up at him. He tested the man's bonds. They were tight enough to be effective, but not so tight as to cut off circulation. He knew the gag was uncomfortable, but he didn't dare remove it. As an assurance that he meant no harm, he patted the man on the shoulder. Some of the wild fright went out of the beady eyes. Working quietly, Rick pushed the boat into the water. He wasn't afraid of being seen. Candles or torches didn't cast enough light to penetrate the blackness as the infrared beam did. But he might be heard. He had to be as quiet as possible. He used only one oar, kneeling in the stern and paddling the flat-bottomed craft like a canoe. The infrared camera placed on the seat with the beam directed ahead of him gave him plenty of light to see by. Once in a while, he turned the beam around. The two boats were making good progress toward the red signal. The beam of the infrared camera didn't penetrate far enough for him to see who or what was under the red light. He rounded the corner that had blocked his way and paddled silently along the rocky wall. The two boats were out of sight now. Rounding the corner gave him a clear view of the torches, but he knew the men around them couldn't see him. The way was longer than he had thought. He paddled in and out of coves, past grottoes and the rocky wall, 
Then at last he saw the little pile of torn cloth he had left on the shore at the end of his cave trail. He had put all the cloth not needed for marking the trail in one place, not because he had been foresighted, but because he hadn't needed it any more. He was glad now of the accident that had marked the right place. Otherwise, he couldn't have identified it from the rest of the openings in the wall. He pulled the boat up to it and anchored it by the rope to a convenient stalagmite. Then he half-lifted, half-dragged the trussed Tibetan into the cave and out of sight of the lake. Rick searched the water for some sign of the boats and thought he heard them coming. He went back to the Tibetan, took his canteen, unscrewed the top, and placed it on the rock. Then kneeling over his captive, he took the man's throat in one hand, and with the other he undid the rag that held the gag in place. Pressure of his fingers warned the Tibetan that he would be strangled if he so much as squeaked. Then Rick pulled the torn rags he had used as a gag from the man's mouth, lifted him into a sitting position, and held the canteen to his lips with a free hand. The Tibetan drank greedily. Rick let him rest for a moment, then held the canteen again. The man drank his fill and then nodded his thanks. Rick quickly replaced the gag and bound it in place, then used another piece of cloth torn from the man's clothing to lash one leg to a stalagmite. He didn't want to risk having the man wiggle to the entrance at the wrong time and sound an alarm. Rick was exultant. High excitement was rising in him because he thought it was only a matter of time now before Long Shadow would come even if his enemy was not already in one of the boats that were making their way back to the camp. He swished out the infrared light, placing the camera on the ground, pointing toward the boat landing. Then he lay down on his stomach, rifle thrust out in front of him and handy to his hand. He could wait. He could wait days if necessary. Because once Long Shadow came, he would force him to show the way to the outside and he would force him to locate the others. And if Long Shadow refused to cooperate, Rick's lips tightened. Then at least he wouldn't be lonesome in the case of fear. His enemy would be his company until the end.